This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, just under the wire, the New Orleans City Council finalized new maps for the city's five council districts, but the debate on the redistricting will continue. The proposed jail facility known as Phase 3 was in the news again this week. We'll get an update. The list of candidates who are vying for the superintendent job at Orleans Parish School District was cut down to seven. We'll also hear about the latest COVID numbers. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hey, Michael. Good morning. Criminal justice reporter Nick Crastel. Hey, Nick. Morning, Carolyn. Education reporter Marta Jusen. Hey, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. And Lens Editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, Charles. Good morning. Michael, first up with you, the New Orleans City Council this week finalized new district maps. They moved some New Orleanians into different council districts. What changed? So the, the map is is pretty similar to what we've had over the you know the last 10 years. We're not looking at any big drastic changes. Um, you know, I, I think the most notable two changes, um, the first one is that uh, uh, Treme is now completely in District C, um, whereas before it had been split between District C and District D. The second kind of major change is that uh, the Broadmoor neighborhood um, is now completely in District B, whereas before it was it was split between um, Districts A and B. You know, it, it, and we have the map online, and, and I invite people to look at it. But you know, you, you'll see um, little changes here and there, and 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 most of those small changes were attempts to keep you know uh, precincts within the same district uh, rather than being split between two. Okay. So yeah, you know, we have these two you know kind of significant changes, but other than that, we're looking at more or less the same districts that we had before. And they're trying to achieve parity roughly in size? Yeah. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, you know, kind of the, the, the central requirement of districting is that the populations of all the districts are, you know, somewhere in the ballpark of the same population. The, the council's consultant said, you know, it has to be below 10 percent, the biggest deviation between any two districts. But ideally, we're shooting for below 5 percent. When the 2020 census came out, we found out that, you know, we've had some population shifts um, in these districts. You know, of course, this is all according to the census. People have brought up very legitimate concerns about how the census is done and whether it captures everybody. But um, according to that census data, uh, we saw huge growth in in District D, um, which became, you know, the biggest district. And actually, District C uh, was the only district of the five to actually lose population. And so District C, you're talking about the French Quarter, Marigny, Bywater, and Algiers, you know, and, and historically a little portion of, of the Treme as well. So between District C and District D in the old districts, according to the 2020 census, there was like an 18% difference between the two. So yeah, the, the main task they had was kind of, you know, shifting population between C and D. Um, so they got that down to like 4% or so. Hmm. So what other options were they looking at? Yeah, there, there were a bunch of options on the table to start. Um, you know, I, I think one of the most controversial and, and kind of best known option, um, you know, the, the consultants came out with kind of four final versions of the map, and three of them had moved the lower ninth ward from District E to District C. I personally haven't heard from anyone living in the ninth ward who thought that was a good idea. The consultants must have gotten that from public comment. So, of course, someone must have been advocating for it at some point. Um, but in public comments, 
um, at the city council meeting yesterday, um, you know, it, it was pretty, there were a lot of people who were pretty kind of upset by that alternative. So I think that was the option that a lot of people were watching, but ultimately the council decided to, you know, not go with that. You could, you could see the logic in doing that. Um, you know, just keep like keeping, keeping the East bank of district district C like running throughout all the downtown riverfront neighborhoods, which, you know, obviously that would, the lower ninth ward would be included, but um, but, you know, the lower ninth ward has been part of has, you know, been part of District E for a while uh, or for a long time. And uh, the current city councilman for District E is from the lower ninth ward, strongly identifies with the lower ninth ward. Um, and people people in lower ninth ward, you know, have, uh, you know, strongly identify with that district. You know, it, it was something that I could see it make sense from a geographic standpoint, but you could see you knew right away it was not going to work from a political standpoint. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll just bring up what, one other alternative map that, that I had been looking at. Um, you know, I, I'm probably a little biased because it affected the neighborhood I'm in. I, I live in St. Rock, um, but originally they had suggested a map. On this final map, Treme goes from being split between two districts um, to being all within one district, which is, you know, not a requirement of redistricting, but it's certainly a goal. You want neighborhoods communities to, to vote for the same councilman to be, you know, represented by the same person. But while Treme in this final map, you know, is now all in the same district, there are several other nearby neighborhoods, including St. Rock, 7th Ward, St. Claude, that are still divided between C and D. There had been a map originally, one of, one of the kind of original draft maps that put uh, all of Treme in C, all of St. Claude in C, and moved the 7th Ward and the St. Rock all into District D. Which, you know, again, is something that I thought was interesting if the goal was, you know, trying to make sure that neighborhoods were all within the same district. I'm not sure exactly why that was dropped, but, you know, ultimately, a lot of those neighborhoods are still going to end up divided between those two districts. And this all happened, it seems like, with um, a lot of haste at, at the last minute. Why and how long have they been working on it behind the scenes? Yeah, so, you know, the, the short deadline is a result of, of this city charter um you know the city charter uh, mandates that the city council has to create a new district map uh, within six months of when the the decennial census is released that was kind of finalized on september 16th which gave us a deadline of march 16th to actually do it um, if you don't hit that deadline the, as the city charter is currently written um, it would automatically um, create a commission of university presidents and representatives of council uh, members who would take over the task of redistricting and city council members would actually forfeit their salaries until that process was done. Um, so, you know, obviously the council had an incentive to get this wrapped up, um, you know, but like you said, you know, this didn't really start until, you know, really a month before the deadline. Um, it's something that's been criticized by the public as well as sitting council members. Um, JP Morrell um, has been very, very critical of it. I mean, he was only, he only took his seat on the council in January. Um, and he has claimed that the prior council should have gotten this started, you know, kind of the minute that this map came out. So yeah, we worked, you know, not only did we only have a, have a month for this, but, but part of that month was Mardi Gras. So I don't think they received the public input that they were hoping for that they think is adequate for a process like this. But is it um, too little, too late? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's obviously too late for this specific redistricting process. You know, this district map has already been finalized. But, you know, I, I, what we're seeing is that council members and the public are kind of looking at this process in general and saying, hey, we need to tweak this a little bit. So, you know, J.P. Morrell um, has said that he 
has committed to introducing a charter change um, that would kind of deal with some of this stuff. Now, keep in mind that a charter change um, not only needs to be introduced by the council, it needs to be approved by a vote of New Orleans you know, voters. Um, so we don't know if these changes will actually happen, but what he's proposing um, is that first of all, adding not only having that six month deadline to create a new district map, but um, actually mandating that the city council start that process kind of as soon as the, the census is released. So basically, you know, I'm not sure what the exact exact wording will be, but some requirement where, you know, the, once the census data is released, the council has a certain number of days or weeks before it actually has to start holding meetings um, and start collecting public input on this stuff. Can I ask you, Michael, have we been given an explanation as to why they got started on this so late? Because I'm looking back. I was just looking back at uh, the 2010 redistricting. So the results, the census had its redistricting data in early February. By the end of the month, the council had already hired a consultant, and by the month after, by the month after that, in April, they were they were doing town hall meetings, and uh, and by June, people started to see the the first uh, the first maps from the consultant come out, and that was still. At that point, it was still two months out from the due date. Um, so why, why do we know why it was done so differently this time? I don't think that it was a conscious decision. I'll say that much. I mean, in terms of who's responsible, there's a lot of finger pointing. Um, you know, JP, JP Morrell has, you know, he's now the chair of the Governmental Affairs Committee, which has headed up this process. He has blamed um, the former head of the Government Affairs Committee, um, who was also his opponent, in you know the election that he recently won, which is Kristen Palmer, so he he's kind of po pointed to Kristen Palmer and said she should have gotten this process started. Mm -hmm. I talked to Kristen Palmer about a month ago. She said that the process was, you know, according to her, the process was not going through the Government Affairs Committee. It was being you know done you know kind of centrally through the full City Council, and she kind of said the responsibility falls to uh, uh, Councilwoman Helena Moreno, who was Council President at the time. So you know who's responsible? I'm not sure, but I think the, you know, to answer your question, I don't think it was a conscious decision to to wait. I think maybe you know the ball got dropped a little. You know, we were dealing with. Omicron, elections, the Ida fallout, you know, we were dealing with a lot as a city at the time. I, I think it may have just fallen through the cracks. Well, and yeah, five out of seven council members were replaced right in the middle. Yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. Well, thanks for keeping an eye on it, Michael. Yep. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are government and cultural economy reporter, Michael Isaac Stein, criminal justice reporter, Nick Krastel, education reporter, Marta Jusen and Lens Editor, Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Karen Gadbois, the co-founder and executive director of The Lens. The Lens is the New Orleans area's first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom dedicated to unique investigative and explanatory journalism. The strength of The Lens lies in the highly qualified editorial and research staff, as well as a collaborative network of affiliated organizations. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thank you. Nick, phase three, once again in the news. We've talked about this project a lot lately, but there was a court hearing this week on the project, a subject that our readers and uh, listeners know really well. What happened this week? So phase three... Um 
just to to uh, bring people up to speed, is a proposed medical and mental health jail facility um, that the city has been ordered to move forward with with building as part of the um, ongoing consent decree that's meant to to bring jail conditions uh, up to constitutional standards. Um, the city has been been trying to get out of building uh, the facility. They they say it's a waste of money and that there's uh, enough space in the current jail to to provide care for for people who uh, have mental illness um uh so th this is a big controversial issue right now um a, a number of criminal justice reform groups are, are uh, strongly opposed to the building and, and and any sort of jail expansion um so this week uh, th there's ongoing litigation the city is trying to get out of it um uh Two weeks ago, there there was an oral argument in in the, at the Fifth Circuit Court of Court of Appeal, and um, uh, you know the city the city is continuing to make its case that that they shouldn't have to build this this facility, um, but they are ostensibly supposed to be continuing to build this facility. Um, so so the city provides these regular status updates to the to the court and to the other parties in the consent decree litigation litigation. Um, that that show their progress um, and, and kind of give give regular updates, um, but in in some of these most recent uh, updates in the last few months in in uh, January and February, there was language in their updates that suggested they couldn't move forward with uh, the procurement of a construction contract to build the facility unless they had approval from from the New Orleans City Council. Um, for both zoning changes and, and a cooperative endeavor agreement between the city and the, and the sheriff's office. Um, and that was a problem for the, for the other parties in the litigation who said, basically, you know, you can't use this as an excuse to, to continue to delay construction. Um, and this has been kind of been on, it, it, this has kind of been hovering in the background and occasionally making its way to the foreground of this, of this kind of, uh, this argument over the facility um but you know for for a long time and under the previous mayoral administration the both the city and the council sort of took the position that that city council approval was necessary for this facility um and the city attorney had gone before the council and kind of said if you don't approve this you're going to be held in contempt of court um so this has kind of all been assumed from 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 the city and the council, although the other parties in the litigation, I think, don't haven't felt that way, and the, the judge certainly hasn't felt that way that the city council approval is legally necessary. So, anyways, there there was this concern from the parties in the litigation and from the judge that the city was using this as a way to delay. The city council now has basically said they want nothing to do with the whole thing, um, and that they they feel like the city is using them as as sort of uh, a scapegoat to to avoid building this, although they all agree that they, they don't want phase three. So the court hearing, the city basically was called to explain itself um, in front of the judge. And, you know, they didn't exactly explain themselves, but they did say, we don't believe that that city council approval is, is necessary to, uh, to move forward and we will move forward. Um, and the judge was somewhat satisfied with that, with that answer. So <laughs> that, that was, one one portion of the hearing. Sorry, that was a, a long a long winded answer. No, 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 that's fine. But can I ask you that you say the judge was satisfied, um, which you know, sure. But um, 
did he express any frustration over the fact that, that I mean, the, the city has periodically used this in one way or another for what five years now, right? Five, six years. Uh, I, I, I would have to imagine that the, the, the judge was a, was a little bit frustrated that they've just suddenly reversed course on it. He, I mean, he was very, he, he was very frustrated, but you know, his, the frustrations that, that the judge has with the city are so sort of numerous and wide ranging at this point. Right. That, he was sort of he basically he was like can you give me an assurance that that this particular thing is not going to be a problem anymore and they did and basically he just wanted to move on he was like i'm not going to ask how this happened i'm not going to ask you know what the point of this was just tell me that it's not uh, you know a problem right now and that you know so so on that particular issue you know i i think he said he was he was cautiously satisfied but that, but there are other issues that were brought up too. You know, the city, the the timeline has been delayed multiple times. Um, you know, I think back in July, when their kind of initial effort to get out of the um, the order to build the facility was denied by the judge, and that was back back in July of 2021. Um, they were set to complete the project in August of 2023. Now their completion date is December of 2024. Um, so that, you know, and, and the city has explained it in kind of a, a few different ways. One is that they say that they needed to reopen um, this this FEMA process that 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 requires them to to get kind of public input, and they say that FEMA they had thought they were finished with this this process and they said but fema told us we have to reopen it and basically the other parties and the judge said well you have to tell us that you have to you know provide some information some correspondence between you and fema that that shows us like what exactly they're asking for because we haven't heard anything about it and this you know has been sort of a persistent issue where things get pushed back and and the other parties and the judge are kind of feel like they're left in the dark. Um, and so the judge ordered the city to turn over within, you know, the next several days, uh, some correspondence or proof that, that this was actually going on. And can we go back for a second and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm trying to remember our conversations about this. It seemed for a time it was almost a, a tactic that they were city council was using to not rezone it was a delay tactic it seemed like that was possible the question is if that was seen perhaps by some as a tactic to delay was that the, the city council makeup prior to the newly elected city council five of seven are new um has that makeup changed so much that that's now would not be considered do you know what i'm yeah, saying so, so the council's position has changed a little bit, I think. So the, the prior the, the big picture position is the same. I would the say. big picture position is the same. So so every council member, really every elected official in the city is has has basically said they're opposed to this facility, including the, so the exception of Gusman. That's that's true, with the exception of the current outgoing sheriff. Um, so that that has remained the same. The council members all the prior council and the current council both have said that they're opposed to it. The prior council said basically 
we don't want to take an action that could be construed as being in contempt of court and decline to vote. And that was a, that was about all they said. This newer council has been a little bit more sort of outspoken about the fact that they really don't want to be used by the city in any way and that they don't believe that it's legally required for them to do this. We're not yet. They're saying we're not going to sign off on it because we don't believe that we should build it, but we're not going to oppose it because we don't want to go against the federal court, right. which, is, which, which is an understandable position. You know, just getting to what the city is doing here, I mean, it's sort of, you know, if you believe this is a de delay tactic, and maybe, maybe it is, um, you know, they've now shifted delay tactics from this sort of, the council sort of debunked itself as, as a usable delay tactic. Um, so now the city has shifted over to, um, to FEMA. Um, so I, I imagine, you know, if the city isn't, isn't able to, uh, produce some documentation of FEMA's demands rather quickly to the court, um, you know, we're going to get more of this from, from, from judge North, you know, m more of this sort of vocal, uh, frustration. And, you know, speaking of judge North, just to address one thing that Nick mentioned that he said that, you know, uh, he sort of characterized the city as creating this controversy. I see where he's coming from on that, but in reality, this has been a controversial project entirely independently of the Cantrell administration coming out against it. It was a controversial project when Mitch Landrieu was uh, was was you know briefly opposed to it when his administration was was uh, negotiating a far larger phase three with the Gusman administration, and and then when he was opposed to it, and then when he was in favor of it again. So, you know, there's a fairly broad coalition of, of criminal justice reform groups and their allies in this city that for a long time have, you know, sort of stood steadfastly against any expansion of the jail's footprint, um, having nothing to do with Mayor Cantrell. Hmm. All right. And Nick, also this week related to phase three, there was a meeting this week to select a new health care contractor, the group that be, would be in charge of whichever medical and mental health unit that eventually comes out of all this. What what happened with that meeting? Yeah, so the, the city is bidding out the, the health care contract at the jail, which is currently held by WellPath, which is uh, the largest private um, correctional health care provider in the, in the country and has uh, held the contract at the jail since 2014. So um, has has, you know, been, been in the jail for, for almost a decade now and has been working with the sheriff's office uh, to come into compliance with, with the consent decree, a large portion of which has to do with inadequate uh, medical and mental health care um, at the jail. And, you know, WellPath has been criticized both in New Orleans and throughout the country that they've been the subject of lots and lots of, of wrongful death lawsuits and, and, and lawsuits claiming that, that people in their people in custody at their facilities aren't, aren't receiving adequate care. Um, so they, you know, really kind of the same, the same groups that, that are really opposed to, to phase three and, and are, and keep a close eye on, on what's going on at the jail um, generally are also opposed to, to this well path contract and want the city to, to get rid of it. So there, there's one other applicant for the, for the contract and that is LSU um, health sciences center and they have have you know worked in correctional settings to some extent but never had kind of this this full wide-ranging contract to to provide health care to facility um so this week there was a, a selection committee meeting that is tasked with choosing between the two options 
Um, they did not come to to a conclusion. Um, they will. They kind of. They just. There, there was some criticism from the public that that there wasn't enough time and that the meeting was not um, uh, sufficiently open to to let let people come in and comment. There was no way to issue a written comment, and um, there it, it was on this on you could like call in, but the the public comment was was sort of tricky to to navigate. So anyway, I think the the selection committee took that under uh, took that seriously, and and I think it's trying to figure out a way to to provide more public comment. Susan Hudson, who, who's the the sheriff elect, and who will be the person who is most closely kind of working with the healthcare provider, whoever it ends up being, um, actually doesn't have a say in in the in the selection, but was was kind of given this this non voting role on the committee so she was there to to sort of ask questions of, of both providers as well she's been very critical of wellpath um and sort of expressed her desire for for sort of a public health type type uh option for the jail so when is wellpath's contract up so they've been getting these kind of brief extensions i believe right now it is up on, on may 31st but i think it's likely depending i mean if if the committee ends up choosing um, LSU, then I think that that they'll have to work with LSU and kind of figure out what that transition is going to look like. And if May thirty first isn't a sort of viable time frame for for LSU to get in there and, and be all set up, then I think it's likely that the city would, you know, give give Wellpath some sort of brief extension just to make sure that there's there's kind of care being provided uh, throughout. If I could just add as an appeal to anyone from city government who's may or may not be listening to this. Let's choose a new contractor and ink a contract. It would be great if you could post it online as the law requires. Um, and while you're at it, you know, maybe post the current version of the WellPath contract online. You know, I think I think when it, when the law says to post all contracts, that also includes, you know, amendments and extensions, which are the which are contracts. And oh, and if they are already online, make them so you can actually find them. The most current one I could find uh, was when WellPath was still called Correct Care Solutions, which was five years ago. So you know, just just a little reminder to follow the law. That's all. Little sunshine we should, we on the make, issue. We should make this a recurring segment where Charles just makes appeals to city <laughs> officials um, to open up the windows, let the sunshine in. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you, Nick. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, Marta. Orleans Parish School Board getting ready to select a new school's superintendent. What do we know about the candidates so far? Yeah, they've whittled it down from 15 to 7. Um, and while they aren't quite calling them finalists yet, um, these are the seven people they chose to move on to basically at like a referencing round to get references and background checks by the search firm. And then more interviews will follow. But of the seven, we do have one um, local person, Jawan Brown-Alexander, who formerly worked for the new schools for New Orleans. Um, she's the daughter of John Brown Sr., who serves on the board um, and has announced his res resignation because he didn't want there to be any conflicts there. We also have Maria Karstofen, who is a former superintendent of the Atlanta Public Schools and the St. Paul Public Schools. So those are some pretty big districts. Yep. Um, Charles Granson has experience in the Boston Public Schools, where he's currently the chief equity and strategy officer. Uh, Marshall Tuck works 
for the, something called Great Public Schools Now in Los Angeles. It's a nonprofit. A lot of his work seems to be reform-based and also appears to be organizations that look a lot similar to NSNO, if you, you know, if you know their, um, the work that they do in the city here. Okay. We also have Avis Williams, who's the superintendent of Selma City Schools in Alabama, and she's been in that role since 2017. Andre Wright is chief academic officer for Aurora Public Schools in Colorado and moved to consulting earlier this year, but it looks like he's trying to get back into education. And then we also have the final one is Jamal Wright, who's the superintendent of the Mississippi Achievement School District, uh, which appears to be very similar to the state's Louisiana Recovery School District. Okay. So a lot of lot of varying experience there. Is there anything to be read into the fact that they're not calling them finalists, do you think? Or is that just... No, I think, I think they wanted to do the reference checks, and then if something came up... Well... Here's what I think. I think they don't want to do full interviews with seven people because that's a lot. So I think in the referencing period, they're going to probably decide Try to, to narrow it down to maybe, you know, two, three or four. Try to whittle it down even further. Yeah, because okay. I think when you do the, you know, when you do the finalist um, interviews, it's kind of a, you know, it's a big to do. They, they fly in, they interview, um, they have various events with, you know, community members and kind of meet the public stuff. So it's a lot to do. And I think... Um, seven candidates doing that would be a, a surprise to me. Yeah. And when they went from 15 to seven, there are some potential questions about violations of state sunshine laws. So what we want to make clear is that um, the board went into an executive session to discuss the character and competence of these 15 candidates, which is something that they're absolutely allowed to do. Now, you know, I think we're, where we're kind of seeing some potential rub against the law is that clearly the the group of people was narrowed from 15 to seven in that private part of the meeting. The board did come out and take a public vote, but their public vote was to uh, move forward, quote, one or more, unquote, of these candidates. So, you know, how they knew which seven to choose means that they somehow came to decisions in that meeting about which eight they were not going to choose. Mm. And you are not allowed, the law explicitly forbids the board from taking any, quote, binding decisions, unquote, um, in that private, in those private meetings. You know, the other thing to think about here is we talked to attorney Scott Sternberg, who's a First Amendment and media lawyer. He's represented the lens in legal matters in the past, but, you know, we know he knows this stuff when it comes to the to media law. I'm just going to read what he said because I thought it was really powerful. He said, the entire point of the open meetings law is to make sure that people understand and can participate in the goings on of government. And the hiring of the superintendent would seem to be one of those things that's designed to be heard in public. Inherent in that, that there's going to be some notice on what you're voting on. If you could just vote on things generally, then what would an agenda look like? Mm. Um, unquote. And I really appreciated his, you know, what would an agenda look like? Because you do need to communicate to the public what your votes are um, so that people can comment on them. And when you say we're going to move forward one or more people, no one knows who you're moving forward. You can't comment on that. Right, 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 right. So you've already suggested that you think that in order to move forward into the next phase, which would then be referred to as the finalists, and it would involve trips to town, um, meet the public, and more formal interviews. How do they get there from here? You said reference checks and other things. Yeah, so those reference checks um, are being done this week. And then on March 22nd, which is Tuesday, they're going to have a special board meeting in which they decide 
on one or more finalist candidates. We see that language again in this mm. <laughs> meeting announcement. Right. And then the following week, they're going to have a special board meeting on March 29th, where they will hold interviews with the candidates. And then that same day, the public's going to be able to hear from the finalists. They're going to have kind of meet and greet situations um, with all the candidates at Carver High School. Okay. All right. And how are COVID numbers looking? COVID numbers are low. There are only 36 active cases in the district. Um, 93 people are quarantined. Um, so that's good. They're still trending low. I think, you know, personally, I'm always thinking like, are, are we going to see a Mardi Gras bump or are we in the clear now? But what is going to happen soon is the district on Friday is going to announce whether or not it's going to do away with its masking requirement. Mm, I'm sure that's going to be controversial. Yeah, it definitely has. Um, I've heard some concern from teachers or like teachers who have health conditions and, you know, kind of thought this would be the standard throughout the year. So now this is a surprise for them. Um, also, you have a lot of schools that have four-year-olds in them and they can't be vaccinated because they're too young. So right. I do think it would be controversial, but I, I also know people are itching to be out of those masks. So Right. Okay. And they are they also proposing a change of reporting in the future, what they're going to rely on? They are. The district said next month they're going to um, stop their reporting as they do it now, which um, requires schools to report to them in addition to reporting to the Department of Health. The district says it's now going to just use Department of Health data. We asked them about that because the Department of Health data we see is only on a parish level, and it does not differentiate between public or private schools. Um, so it's hard for us to tell you know, exactly where cases are coming from each week, and they just do a weekly report. Um, but the district says... It will continue to give a school-based count. So I think there's there's some additional report out there that the district gets from the state that does have that school breakdown. It, it's just the, the one that the Department of Health puts out for the public does not have that. It's only by parish. So, mm. you know, I can't differentiate between public and private schools. Okay. All right. Thank you for those stories this week. Thank you. All right. You all have a good week. Thanks, Thanks Carol. Thanks, Carol. Bye, guys. See you Bye. later. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from the Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week Michael Isaac Stein, Nick Crastle, Marta Jusen, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news and opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>